This morning we're going to look really at an overview of these two chapters that we read together. And following on after Easter and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we know that the Saviour ascended into heaven. And now he is ruling and reigning and one day he will come again. And he is the King of Kings. And also I was thinking really there is much being made of the approaching prospect of the coronation of Charles III. And I was blessed really to be reminded again that the Lamb is on the ultimate throne. And uh, 40 days after the resurrection we see that the scriptures tell us that Christ went into heaven in the presence of a large company of disciples. And so in Mark 16, 19, it says, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. In Acts 1, verse 9, it says, While they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Later on in one of the letters, Paul describes it to Timothy, and he says, And without controversy... Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And so the resurrection and the ascension were both those declarations, those proofs of the victory of the Lord Jesus. And his coronation and enthronement at the right hand of God is clear. The Father has glorified the Son together with himself with the glory that he had with him before even the foundation of the world. But friends, the glory known by the Lord Jesus now is greater than that which he set aside when he came into the world on that saving mission. And you say, well, how? Well, now he sits at the right hand of the Father, not only in the fullness of his deity, fully God, but also as the glorified man, not only as ruler, but also as the redeemer. He is God the Son, he is the second Adam, he is the King of kings, he is the Lamb of God who was slain, he is the judge of all the earth. And what we find here as we come to this final book of the Bible in Revelation, we get these glimpses of the glory that is to come, the great future which is ahead. Now, you need to know this morning that the Bible is perfect revelation and it is sufficient. God in his grace has given us what we need. Not too much, not too little. Every aspect of scripture is apportioned and selected by his divine wisdom. And so it is a a vital but to us in this life. Now, of course, we know only in part now what we will know in fullness and glory But the word of God tells us those things that we need to know. And that's true concerning the beginning of the world. When you go right back to the beginning, that's so important. You know, if there is a God of infinite power, there is not the slightest bit of difficulty in believing that he created and that he made all things out of nothing in the space of six days, as it says in Genesis, before setting aside a day of rest. And the importance of a, of a literal Adam, a real Adam, that is essential to the gospel. So you've got the, the truth concerning the beginnings. But the Bible not only tells us of the beginning, but also what is going to happen at the very end of history. And the Bible deals with, you know, very powerfully with the process and the, the progress of time and history and where everything is headed. 
And we need to know that at the great consummation at the end, the Lord Jesus will come again and he will return as judge of all things. And that's the, the context in which our life is lived now. And the Bible also sets before us the world that God has created. And I've mentioned it before, but it's helpful for us to understand it in three parts. The Bible describes it. So you have the heaven above us. And then you've got this, this earth, as it were, in the middle, and then hell beneath, like a, a three-story house. That's the way in which God has seen fit to reveal that reality to us. And there's reason to believe that when the end comes, this will change from three, as it were, to two. So from the Scriptures, it appears that heaven and earth, after the end of the world, will be joined together into one glorious, renewed place, the, the new heavens, the new earth. It means that these two will, will come together in some stunning way as one. And in eternity to come after Christ's return and the judgment day, there will be two places, heaven and earth as one, the great glory, and then also hell, and this will be the eternal state. And all of that sets the context what we find here, these incredible visions of glory in Revelation 4 to 5. And this wonderful revelation and supernatural vision of Jesus Christ is given to the Apostle John who was in exile on the Isle of Patmos for his faith in Christ. And so we're going to look at three things this morning, just very simply and hopefully clearly. And the first is a vision of heaven. And we see that from the beginning of Revelation 4 verse 1. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. So the door mentioned is a, a symbolic way of saying that John is given this staggering experience. And spiritually, he is caught up into the third heaven in a similar way to the Apostle Paul in the description of his own experience. Now you say, well, why is it called the third heaven? Well, it's called the third heaven because... The first heaven refers to the, the clouds and the sky that we can see above our heads. The second heaven is what we know as space with the, the stars and the galaxies and the sun and the moon and the, the planets. And the third heaven is the one where the glory of God is to be seen. And so we, we don't see God in this world or in the clouds or among the stars. In that sense, heaven is where the glory of God is to be seen visibly. And John hears this voice like a trumpet, and no doubt it is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ because in Revelation 1, Jesus speaks to him, and again it is with the voice of a trumpet. So John in his soul is lifted up, and at the end of verse 1, Jesus says, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, friends, this is what we call a prophetic book. It deals not with the, the history of the church as such, but its future. Things which were to come and are still to come. And some of the things in Revelation have been happening since John died all those years ago. Revelation foretells of the rise of terrible anti-Christian powers and persecuting powers and manifestations of error and blasphemy and of the Antichrist and evil forces of that kind. Some of those things are happening now and there is more to come. But the glorious fact is this, my dear friend, that if we're believers, we have an incredible hope. And one day we will enter the glory to come. And that's what I want to emphasize to you this morning. 
We don't know how long we will have. But in Christ, we know what our future will be. In the glory of God and with him. And you know, many of those that we have loved in the, the fellowship over the years, they've gone before us. But you and I are soon to be there if we are believers by the rich grace of God. And what we have here is a great sort of panoramic view of heaven. And the question is, well, what do we see? Well, the first thing that is mentioned and emphasized is the throne of God Almighty in the very center. There is a throne in the, the midst of heaven and everything else is, is round about the throne. And so in the center of heaven on the throne is God Almighty, God the Father. And friends, that is the way the Bible portrays God. He is in the, the center of all things in heaven and in earth, under the earth. Nothing happens without the heavenly Father's surveillance and control and sovereignty. And that's given for information to us as a, a strong comfort and a consolation for the many evils that give us unhappiness in this world. We must never forget that God is in control, that he really is holding all things. And the next thing that we're told about is that round about this great throne, there are 24 seats. Now, what are these? Well, there were 12 tribes in the Old Testament and there are 12 apostles of the Lamb in the New Testament. And so these 24 seats are for the representatives of the Old Testament church and also of the New Testament church, representatives of the entire church of God in this world. And these 24 seats are occupied by elders. And really, that is to say that they are representative of you and I. You see, that is the work of a, a representative elder to stand for you and for me. And they are wearing white robes and crowns of gold. And they are there solely because of Christ, just as all believers will be. You know, the Lord Jesus said to his 12 apostles that in the, the restitution of all things and the regeneration of heaven and earth, he says, you will sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And you know, this wonderful condition, this, this future is that we too, as believers, are going to be brought to sit with Christ upon his throne to be granted those crowns of gold. And in the light of that, it makes this, you know, money-grabbing, filthy, broken, ruined world in which we live look like such a sordid and miserable place. You know, one preacher uses a picture from John Bunyan where there was a man with a, a muckrake who was scraping bits of dust and sticks together. And, uh, but in front of him, though he didn't see it, was a, a shining figure holding a crown above his head. You know, my friend, that crown will be put upon the head of everyone who perseveres to the end, following Christ, faithful to him in what he has called us to do in this world. And you might be feeling as though you're, you know, sweeping the muck and the dust and the sticks, but you have a glorious future and Christ sees and he will bring you home. And so we're to be encouraged because these men are our representatives. They, they show us what is ahead of us, what will happen to us, if we're in Christ. And then we're told in the passage about these four beasts or living creatures. Now the word beasts occurs many times in Revelation and two different words are used. And the one that we have here means, as we have before us, living being. And it seems from the passage that it refers to what we would call the cherubim. 
these immensely powerful angels which are in heaven. And there are cherubim and seraphim and thrones and dominions and principalities and powers and archangels and there are ranks and orders of angels of which we know very little now but we will know more of in the glory to come. But these four seem to be the cherubim and their purpose is to give glory and honour to God. And they never rest day or night, always giving glory and honour. They cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. They punctuate eternal glories by referring to the holiness of God. They emphasise the character of God, the perfection and purity of God. And all these beings that are in heaven, all that is there in this vision, we see they are engaged in worship. We're told regularly throughout this passage that these elders regularly fall down on their faces to worship him, the one that lives forever and ever. They fall on their faces before God to adore the, the uncreated majesty of God. And that's the, the glorious picture that we have and we need to know it because it reminds us how transient our present life is. It's the perspective we need and how little really anything matters here compared with getting to that place. And that should be our, our great ambition, our great perspective that whatever else, that we know that we are on that road to heaven. To know that when we depart this world, we are going to be with Christ, which is far better. Nothing compares to that. We need to be preparing for that great eternity to come. The question is, are you ready? And the only way that you'll be ready is by trusting Jesus for yourself. You know, as we're, we're granted this heavenly glimpse, we see that there's such reverence there, how different this present world is from that world which is to come. Everything there is to honour God and give glory to God and worship and praise and thanksgiving. And we look around at this desperate, broken world that we live in. You know, people all around us, they think that we're wasting our time by being here today. You know, praying to God and singing praises and talking about these things. They say, you're missing out on life. You're wasting the opportunity to live it up, to, to do what you want. But they don't see the futility of living for this fading world. If we're believers, we have by grace been given to understand that there is a lasting world to come. There is eternity to come. And you know, if we are headed to that place, what an incredible position to be in. What a revelation we have been given and it should change our mind about everything. You know, how can we be so worldly minded in the light of this? How can we go back into the world and forget that God is on the throne of glory? We're going to look at that a little bit more tonight. But he controls all things. He, you know, all things down to the number of hairs upon your head, the number of grains on the sand of the shore. God is an absolute, total, omnipotent, omniscient control of all things. And what foolishness, therefore, not to acknowledge him and worship him and love him and give your whole life and your, your heart to him. We get this peak, this glimpse into the glories of heaven and the glory of God. But then the second thing I want you to see is a vision of Christ. And we see that really in chapter 5 and verses 5 to 6, where it says, 
Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The Lord Jesus, described here as the lion and the lamb, the conquering lion, the divine son, he is God. But the lamb, in that he is a man who was slain, in meekness, who went as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before a shear is his silence, so he opened not his mouth. The blessed and holy Son of God, fully God and fully man. And as he sees this vision that the Lord Jesus gives him of these heavenly realities, something happens to John. And you'll notice it, we read it together. The apostle John is brought to tears. He begins to weep. Now, why does he begin to weep? Well, he's confronted by the fear that there is no one who can look into the secrets of the world and explain the troubles of his experience and beyond. We began to look at this last Lord's Day morning when we broke bread together. And this book or scroll mentioned can be best explained as the book of God's purposes, as he is eternally foreordained and predestined and in order that his eternal purposes should be carried out in this world, something had to happen. Namely, that our blessed Savior had to give his life as a propitiation for his people's sins, and having done so, to rise again to glory and sit on the throne of God. And so this book contains all the, the purposes of God to be revealed as they are going to be unfolded in the course of time. Now, friends, it is wonderful imagery it's not a literal book because God knows everything in his mind and memory but it is a, a helpful picture for us to understand and so this book representing the purposes of God and the only one who has authority to open the seals on the book is the Lord Jesus and much of it will concern the the great purposes of God in saving sinners to save an innumerable multitude of sinners in this world and we are in this privileged position of being able to look back through time and see how these great purposes have been and are being fulfilled. Friends, we can see how the gospel has advanced across the globe through Africa and Asia and South America, all over the world. Millions being brought to faith in Jesus Christ, this glorious gospel of the blessed God succeeding to bring home those for whom Christ did his work. And so it will continue until that final consummation. But you know, John is given this vision for a reason. And as John is on Patmos, the cause of Christ, it seems so small and so fragile, and there seems to be no one to open the book. And so, so John weeps. But then he's comforted by one of the elders who points him to the Lion of Judah who has conquered, who has prevailed. And you see, John needed to be reminded again. He needed a, a refreshing vision of the Lord Jesus to bring him back to focus on Christ. You see, he began to focus on the circumstances rather than Christ. And so when he turns, he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lamb's wounds, a reminder of the death of Jesus on the cross, by which he achieves salvation. 
And when it's said that Christ is worthy, it underlines that he is perfect and that he has been absolutely, totally obedient to his heavenly Father's will. And it refers to the completion of his his work and his ministry when he cried out, it is finished, obedience in fullness. And of course, he was raised on the third day, 40 days later, ascended up into glory, sat at the right hand of God. And so the Lamb standing, representing the triumph of his resurrection, and in this vision we see Jesus, the all-merciful, the all-powerful one, the Lamb and the Lion. And he deserves and demands the worship and obedience of all the world. And he will have it. So important for us to remember that. Yes, Jesus went to the cross. Yes, his body was broken and his blood was shed. But he accomplished that work. He triumphed over death. He rose again. He rules. He reigns one day to return. And we look forward to that day. And Jesus is the solution to John's tears, just as he is the solution to our own tears, a fearfulness when we feel as though this world is overwhelming us and pressing in against us. Maybe times when we feel so small and so weak and so marginalized, when we're tempted to believe that this world, rather than being under control, is governed only by chaos we need to be brought back to see Jesus as he is. The lion and the lamb. None of us know what a day will bring or what will happen during a night. Those things belong to God alone. But what great grace we know when the Lord gives us that tap on the shoulder, as it were, and brings us back to his word and says, are you forgetting that the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed? And he is on the throne. He is in charge. He oversees the future. He is king of kings. You know, Jesus had already told John in Revelation 1, he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And so in our Christian lives, maybe there are times when we feel discouraged. Maybe we feel defeated. Maybe we just feel troubled by the present or even troubled by what might happen in the future. You know, the the great overriding lesson from this vision is to remember again what we know to be true. Look to the Lion of Judah, who is for us the Lamb slain. He is worthy. He is able to open the scrolls. He is directing the history of this world to its end, to his return, and our entry into glory to be with him. And if we are believers, we know the Lord Jesus. He is our substitute. He is our Savior. And he is Lord. And we have been made part of his church. And we can rest assured that he has taken the responsibility to do everything necessary to save us, to keep us, and to bring us home. And so whatever assails us from without or from within, we are safe in his hands. We have been saved, we will be kept, and we will be brought through. The Lamb is in the midst of the throne, and we understand that to mean that he has received his coronation. He is king over this universe, and it's not in doubt. Now, Christ has a twofold kingship. 
He is prophet, priest, and king over the church, certainly. But he is also the king of kings, the universal king. It's what we call his mediatorial kingship. He is Lord over everything. All authority in heaven and earth is his. And so I say it boldly and clearly and unashamedly that he is the ultimate king of England or of Russia or of China or of anywhere else. He is king over angels. He is king over devils. And they know it, by the way. The devils know very well that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And God the Father is committed into the hands of Christ as the God-man, all authority to rule the universe, every particle of it, until the last of his blood-bought children are brought into salvation. And when the end comes, Jesus Christ our Lord will give back the kingdom to his Father so that God may be all in all. And the Bible tells us these things. And we might not grasp every minute detail of it, but it is enough for us to know that the Lamb is on the throne. You know, the earthly kings and the bad governments, whether they're in London or in Moscow or, uh, you know, in Washington, wherever, they're making a mess of things. That's true. But surely we should be thankful that ultimately they are not in control. Above them, there is a sovereign hand. They don't recognize it. But Jesus Christ is slowly and steadily bringing all things to their consummation, to their final end, and not one of those for whom he died will be missing. You mark it, not one will be missing in that great day. Not one will be left behind. Everyone for whom he shed his blood will come in because he is absolutely in total command of everything. And that should give us great heart in gospel work. And it's wonderful because the Lord Jesus sends his, his missionaries and his ministers and his witnesses and his servants across the world. You know, he, he sends his people. You know, small, great, whatever. He sends his people to go and speak of him and to proclaim him. And he has placed us here in Penzance for such a time as this. And we go out and we should go out into the highways and the byways and the communities to preach and witness to the lost people passing by. And you know, there are times when we're engaged in that type of work, it can seem futile because people seem so hard. They seem disinterested. They, they don't want to know. And we can think, well, well, what good is going to come from it anyway? But God has his people and they will hear the master's voice and they will come. The gospel cannot fail. And it cannot fail here in Penzance or anywhere else in this country or around the world. The Lamb is on the throne. And very simply, it means that we shouldn't be anxious for the cause of God for his true church because it will be sustained and it will be brought through. You know, there are many, aren't there, who have said, well, Christianity, that's done. You know, you can draw a line under that, that's over. It's got no relevance. You know, the true church is finished. Now, by the way, there will be lots of churches that do finish. Lots of churches that preach error that will fall away and they'll disappear. But Christ's true church will endure. You know, the kingdom of God has its setbacks, that is true, but the outcome is not in doubt. 
as one explains, if we had eyes to see into the future, in this country, in Israel, amongst the Jews, amongst all nations, there will come forth a mighty seed who will do service to God. He will not lack his worshippers. The cause of Christ will endure. Our Jesus is the Lion and the Lamb. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He rules, he reigns. One day he will return. And we should be ready for that day. And the last vision as we finish. A vision of the believer's future. So a vision of heaven, vision of Christ, a vision of the believer's future. You know, for many of us, all of us, if we're following Jesus, it is the way of the cross now. But there is a glorious future to come. A blessed future for the believer. And in these chapters, there is an incredible symphony of praise to God. In fact, half the words, you know, in chapter 5, really are, Praise to God. Look at Revelation 5, verses 8 to 10. The four living creatures, 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. We shall reign on the earth. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Verses 13 to 14. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. And then it speaks of others falling down and worshiping him. That's our future. Glory. Worship. The presence of God unhindered. No more tears. No more pain. No more sin. But just that wonderful perfection and bliss. The plan of salvation will succeed and all the enemies of God in the end will be made to look fools. That's our future, friend. If you're in Christ, that's your future. And you do not need to fear. You have a wonderful hope ahead. You know, with all that is coming in the coming weeks, don't forget that all kings, all emperors, all mighty men, just like us commoners, who are nothing, will all have to bow the knee to Jesus Christ in the end of time. And the wise amongst kings and queens and commoners know that. Do you know, one preacher uses the account from the life of Queen Victoria. I don't know if she was a true believer, but she started something very good, and maybe you'll have heard this account before. But many of you will have heard of a famous piece of music called Handel's Messiah. And it's a powerful piece of music singing about the praises of Messiah. And uh, many words of the scriptures are set to that music. And there is a chorus in it called the Hallelujah Chorus. And it's a serious music. It treats the Bible in a reverential way. Now, on one occasion, Queen Victoria was at a, a performance of this uh, great work. And she was sat there listening to the, to the Hallelujah Chorus. And she was there in a royal box. It was in a grand theater and... Many others were there as well, taking this magnificent music. And as the words of Scripture were being sung, suddenly the large audience were aware that Queen Victoria had stood up during the Hallelujah Chorus, that she wanted to acknowledge the truth that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what else could the audience do but stand up as well? And so the whole theatre stood up as that was sung. 
And apparently that became a, a tradition across the world that whenever the Hallelujah Chorus was sung, when King of Kings and Lord of Lords is referred to, everybody stands to acknowledge that fact. But friend, you know, as wonderful as that is and as good as that is, just respecting something like that won't save you. You need to know the king for yourself. You need to acknowledge your sin and your rebellion and to turn from it and to believe in this Jesus, the lamb that was slain, the conquering lion, to believe that he alone can deliver you through his life, through his work on the cross, his triumphant resurrection. But the warning is this, be sure that if you don't bow before him for salvation now, you will bow before him on that final day. But it will be to condemnation. My dear friend, I pray that it would not be so for you. My heart for you is that you would come to him now and that you would know that now is the day of salvation and you would trust Christ and know this king and share with us in that glorious hope. Because if we do know and love this king, then we have that great confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. That whatever happens in this life, come what may, we know what the future will be. And let us go on worshipping and serving the lamb on the throne as well as we can until that day when we shall see him and when we shall be with him forever. Forever with the Lord. Amen. So let it be.